Alright, so I wanted to talk about something this morning. Something that's pretty, pretty relevant. It's, it's kind of backtracking as far as eras in the horror genre go, but I do feel like it's very, very, very relevant because I feel like a lot of us were, a lot of us are still misinformed about certain eras of horror, you know, that maybe get a bad rap or just get maybe more praise than they should. First of all, let me just let me just be completely random. Does anybody else in the fucking Philadelphia area, do y'all feel like like the time was off or something this morning? I don't know. Like I woke up kind of not knowing where I was, not that I was hungover or anything, completely sober, but woke up like it, it, it was like six in the morning and it's like the sun didn't even like rise. The shit just bullied everyone to wake the fuck up i don't know it was it was just so fucking random i thought that i missed like a daylight savings time announcement or something like that it was just just threw me off a little bit man i you know i don't know it's just one of those weird mornings it's a good morning though it's beautiful outside um even under the circumstances everything that's going on it's supposed to be a nice day today but we'll we'll all i promise we will all make it a nice day but jumping back into what i was talking about let's talk about eras of horror one in particular that i'm gonna focus on in this episode but 70s you know the 60s of course the 60s gave me personally uh the greatest movie and horror movie ever made in the late 60s you know they were on their way into a whole nother whole nother era of film and a whole nother era in the world in general but you know of course my favorite movie night of living dead came out in 1968 but then before that you had you had psycho and things like that. You had the you had the Hitch Hitchcockian era of film. Now the 70s, the 70s gave birth to stuff like Halloween, Black Christmas, a, a lot of um like uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like a lot of uh what they call the granddaddy of 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 slasher movies. Halloween being the best one for me personally again. But then we jumped into 80s territory. Now we all know what the 80s brought for us. We know that brought um Friday the 13th, Pamela Voorhees, Jason Voorhees. We know that brought Freddy Krueger. We know that brought um, Charles Lee Ray for the Chucky series. We know that brought um, Pinhead for the Hellraiser series. We know that birthed the 80s was, hands down, undeniably, it was the golden era of horror movies, man. that that There is a documentary on this shit, and it's one of the greatest documents, probably one of the, I want to say the second best movie documentary i've ever seen in my life but um outside of the household names or the ones that would become household names as the 80s went on and the 90s came about um you, you know you had the you had the knockoffs you had the whether they were cheap knockoffs or whether they were trying to do their own thing and just roll with the the holiday theme you know you had the happy birthday to me you had graduation day you had my bloody valentine you had prom night you had terror train you had all this good shit um, in the eighties. And I, you know, I give the eighties credit because when you go back and watch those movies, that's back when people were genuinely making horror films just to make them, you know, they didn't make them for a, a quick buck. They made the movies really cheap. It doesn't have the best acting by a long shot. They, the, the most money they probably spent was, um, for the special effects. You know, when, whether you had somebody like Tom Savini attached to it, whether you had somebody like, uh, you know, Greg Nicotero, Howard Berger and um, Robert Kurtzman uh, doing the effects. That's KMB for the uninitiated. But 
Um, you know, and, and another thing you probably spend money on in the eighties were some really big name, big name actors. Like you had fucking Leslie Nielsen is, is in prom night. You know what I'm saying? You, you had big name actors that would pop up and show love for these movies, which is really, um, that's a really humble uh, gesture for them to do that. And, you know, back in the seventies, you had somebody like Donald Pleasance who probably had to be paid the most money to be on set for Halloween. And in Halloween two, he came back in 1981. Now, I say that to say this, while the 80s era, you know, it it kind of started to run out of steam, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's said in this documentary, it's, it's called Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher Film. They said in a documentary that, you know, um, they, they said stuff like Freddy's wisecrack started wearing thin because, you know, he became a comedian as the movies went on. You got Jason taking on Carrie, which I didn't have a problem with, by the way. Uh, the New Blood is one of my most underrated entries in the Friday 13th series as a whole. But you had Jason taking on Carrie and going to New York. Um, Halloween 4 was a, a success in 88, but Halloween 5, you know, it was not received too well at the box office in 89. But you had kind of like um it was just this repetitive thing as far as the horror genre was concerned and a lot of people were starting to take notice to it and they i don't know i don't know if they felt like they had the rug pulled from under them and all of that but there was really a sharp sharp ass decline in like quality horror movies as the 80s you know as we got later into the um you know the 80s era leading up into the 90s and there's this there's this misconception that in the 90s, the horror genre was just completely dead until 1996 when Scream came out. And listen, man, I always do a rest in peace shout out anytime I mention Wes Craven or do commentary for something he was attached to or whatever the case may be. Big rest in peace shout out to, to Wes Craven to this day, man. He was a he was a cinematic genius. He was a staple in horror, whatever you want to call him. He he was that guy. Um, but people, you know, and rightfully so, they do give him a lot of credit for you know, resurrecting, quote unquote, the, the horror genre back in 96 when he did Scream because it was meta. It was a fresh take. We hadn't really we hadn't really seen anything like that before. And I think the closest we got to meta horror might have been, I don't know, the likes of something like New Nightmare, which Wes Craven did, or it might have been the likes of something like um, Friday 13, part six, Jason Lives. But there that is like the epitome of you know, the example of when, when people say that the horror genre came back to life. And I honestly don't think that's true, man. I, I really, I got 20 examples of why the, why 90s horror was alive and well, man. There was a lot of life in 90s horror that I feel like we don't, we don't give enough credit to as horror fans and as film fans. Now, I have a list of 20 movies and i'm not going to get super in depth into them you know because i don't want to take up too much time here but um some of them i i am kind of walking a fine line with because they're not straight up horror some of the ones i'm gonna mention they are more so like thriller one is actually two are actually crime thrillers with horror sprinkled inside of them and maybe one or two is like just goofier quality of a movie it's like horror comedies but for the most part these are just 20 examples of the fact that the horror genre in the 90s was definitely the most underrated time for horror, man, because you really got some gems that, you know, I feel like people, this is pre-96, by the way, all of these movies came out pre-1996, pre-Scream, and that type of thing, but there are some 
some movies people do not talk about, man. Like, I, I'm, I'm really kind of upset that we kind of just shove 90s horror aside and just we we only credit Scream as the one that, you know, brought everything back to life and, you know, just just resurrected the genre that wasn't even dead to begin with. I think it was just going through a little bit of a dry spell. And even through the dry spell, we were getting some really, really good prebo shit, man. So like I said, I got 20 examples, so I won't jump super in-depth into all of them. However, um, my first one I want to talk about is, oh my God, man, this movie is so near and dear to my heart. Probably my favorite remake ever made, which literally came out when 1990 hit, in the year 1990. But um, my number one is Night of Living Dead, and Tom Savini directed this. And first of all, you got... The man himself, George A. Romero, writing the script. And he, you know, but Tom Savini was his right-hand man at the time. They worked on Dawn of the Dead. He actually was supposed to do the effects for Night of Living Dead, but I think he went away and he served time in the war. But, you know, they worked on Dawn of the Dead, worked on Day of the Dead, Creep Show. They worked on a lot of shit together. And um, for George A. Romero to, to let this guy who admired him and looked up to him step in the driver's seat, you know, to sit down in this director's chair and helm a classic, you know, whether they did it to finally make some money off of it or what, the movie's a home run, man. Now, what they do in that movie is, first of all, what they do in that movie is they cast Tony Todd as Ben. That's a sure win for me. Patricia Tallman's in it. Tom Towles, uh, rest in peace, shout out to him. William Butler. You got this this great cast. You got these zombies who are like zombies we've never seen before on screen. They literally were like dead weight. They had they all had the same, you know, dead colored eyes and stuff like that. But there's a lot of misdirection in that movie that works. Like when you think something's going to happen the way it happened in the original movie, they completely throw a curveball in the game and, and they might keep it a little familiar for nostalgia's sake, but they completely turn the, the, the story on its ear while being super true to the original man which is how every remake should be every remake if you're gonna do a remake people i know i'm talking like i'm some big director and i ain't shit i you know i haven't made a movie before and all that good stuff but if you're gonna make a remake respect the source material you can stay true to the source material but just go a little crazy just make it strong enough to stand on its own that's exactly what night of living dead did man and Rest in peace, shout out to George A. Romero for being being the GOAT, man, the greatest of all time. But that is definitely um, a movie that people need to, if if nobody's seen Night of Living Dead 1990, that remake, uh, please do check it out. I say watch the, I say watch the original first. So a lot of things make sense and a lot of things are um, a lot more special to you when you, you know, when you understand the references and things of that nature in a movie. Now, number two. Mm, this is a uh, uh, another one of my top five, but it's top five just scariest movies I've ever seen. One of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. I like it way better than the original. It's the best movie in the series for me. Uh, the series being four movies as a whole and a TV show, which I never really got into. The Exorcist Three, which also came out in 1990. Now, this is definitely one that I recommend to any and every horror fan. Not even if you're not even a horror fan a thriller fan, a crime thriller, because it is a crime thriller at the end of the day. It's, uh, it, it's, I almost said it's William Peter Blatty, but that's the guy that wrote and directed it. But it is, um, George C. Scott playing a detective who is tracking down 
um, you know, a murderer. And there's a series of murders that's going on. And the MO for the this this killer is that of the long supposed to be dead Gemini killer played by both fucking Brad Dorth and Jason Miller from the original Exorcist movie. Now, for me personally, I know I'm I'm in the minority here and I know I get a lot of shit for this, but The Exorcist is an overrated movie for me. It's not a bad film. I just don't see the hype around it. Like, and I know people say, well, you had to see it at the time it came out. I wasn't born then. I didn't see it when that, you know, when it came out. So I can't run with that and just accept the fact that it's overrated. It's not a bad film. I like it, but it's just not all that great for me. And but the thing about that movie is you can watch The Exorcist 1, skip completely over part 2, and jump right into the third one and kind of get caught up to speed with some of the things that are happening. There's a lot of references there. And George C. Scott does play a character from the first movie. But The Exorcist 3, man, one of the best jump scares ever is is the definitive jump scare in horror movie history for me the directing's great the acting is amazing there are some really unexplained creepy ass moments in this movie you get cameos by samuel jackson patrick ewing and fabio all in one scene it's a dream sequence but it's all in one scene and i think that's some of the weirdest casting decisions i've i've probably ever seen in my life man but the movie is just it's the atmosphere Everything the movie has going for it. It's, it's creepy as shit. It's scary as fuck. I actually want to do commentary for this movie today or tonight. Like, I really want to, you know, test my... I want to test my gangster. And I want to turn all the lights out and watch the movie really late and do commentary for it and see if I survive through it. If I don't, at least y'all will have this episode to remember me by. But number three on this list, and rightfully so. I didn't see this movie until, uh, you know, sometime last year. And I was so mad that I just did not do myself any justice by seeing this earlier. Like, even in my childhood, it was another 1990 movie, Jacob's Ladder, which was directed by Adrian Lin. Now, Adrian Lin is the genius behind the classic Fatal Attraction. Um, I know there was Play Misty for me before that. That's the template. But Fatal Attraction is that movie that, you know, put the stamp on. Listen, fellas, not only do you not dip off on your woman, but you better be careful because you might run into an Alex Forrest that'll try to cut your dick off and fuck herself with it. That's how crazy she was. But Jacob's Ladder, Jacob's Ladder is uh, more so of a psychological thriller, horror movie. There is a lot of strange shit going on in here with Tim Robbins and Emmanuel Pena, uh, Elizabeth Pena, I'm sorry. Now, what happens is you, you get this guy who who is, um, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a war veteran and he comes back home, but he starts experiencing all this strange shit. He starts seeing all these like demonic type of images and you really don't know in the movie what's real and what's not, which is one of the things that really fucked my head up, especially with the twist ending. I'm not going to spoil the twist ending for anybody, but there, there is a crazy twist ending. And if I'm not mistaken, Macaulay Culkin is in that movie. I really want to say Macaulay Culkin was the kid that played his son. Um, don't quote me on that, but I really feel, I don't know, maybe I'm having a, a, a Jacob's Ladder moment, my damn self right now, but that movie is, um, it's a really trippy psychological thriller for those that like to, you know, get mind fucked in movies to say the least, cause that's exactly what it does. Adrian Lynn does that. Uh, he, he puts a lot of flair from fatal attraction into that, into that movie, man. And it, and it works perfectly. It works in the movie's favor. Number four is 
another 1990 movie that uh you know i did a review for this if you guys want to check it out very very early on it's a long ass review i kind of broke the entire movie down unexpectedly but rob reiner directed uh misery in 1990 now misery uh some people can consider this horror some people can consider this thriller you know it doesn't matter you go back and forth but it fits into this category perfectly um it's one of those bottle movies. It's one of those bottle movies that is, is very much Hitchcock because it takes place in in uh, basically like one or two settings, you know, the house and the, you know, the share station. Uh, there's also like a bookstore that they that they show at some point in the movie. But for the most part, it's just James Caan and Kathy Bates in this house It's so Hitchcockian as far as the tension, as far as like the thriller elements and stuff like that. And it does go hard at some point when she hobbles his legs and shit with the wooden block in the middle of it. But, um, you know, it, it it's just one of those bottle films, man. It's if it, it makes you feel so claustrophobic and so uncomfortable. Like it's 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 also misleading too because at some point in the movie, I know personally for me, I always forget that she's holding this guy captive because she just her her fucking on off switch is just so insane in the movie that she can just she can uh you know she can slam a a wooden chair or wooden table against the wall and just threaten Paul to kill him and then she's like. I'll go and fix you something to eat, my darling. And then she'll just walk off. It's it's a crazy movie. Kathy Bates did an amazing job in that. And James Caan did um, also. I also did an episode where I was talking about, I know it was kind of, people were kind of, you know, either listening to it or looking at me crazy when I was talking about it was I said, I do, I do want a misery remake. Who knows what will happen as far as this, because it is the Stephen King era of remakes. I don't know. Maybe I'll get lucky and get that wish. Number five, another 1990 movie. Uh, I, my, like, I just got like the jitters, the heebie jeebies, just even looking at the title on this piece of paper. I ain't with it. I am not with it. Um, Arachnophobia. Uh, Frank Marshall directed this movie. You know, there's a lot of y'all, y'all hear like how I'm starting to stutter and shit like that. Like, I am for the uninitiated, I am absolutely petrified, mortified terrified anything with fide on the end of it that is what i am when it comes to fucking spiders i do not i do not like spiders i can't play around with it and arachnophobia is one of those movies um i know prior we had william shatner in kingdom of the spiders which is also a good spider movie it's a good throwback movie if anybody hasn't seen it but arachnophobia man i, I it's 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 I, I can't get with it it's it's terrifying the scene at the end where Jeff Daniels is going up against that one last spider in the basement, in the wine cellar. It plays out like a fucking slasher movie. This spider is so calculated in its movements when it's trying to like, it's trying to evade the, the fire that he's spraying at him. But then it's like jumping out at him, doing jump scare scene moments and shit. It, that spider is on his ass and it's about the size of my fucking hand sprawled out on this table right now probably bigger and i it was an animatronic spider that they built uh, i mm -mm. we gotta move on from that immediately number six um something a little more uh you know i'm, I'm, I'm a little more lenient to talk about but it is pretty creepy the people under the stairs which came out in 1991 Directed again by the late great Wes Craven. People understand is Wes Craven's most underrated movie uh, of all time, and it, 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 like his whole filmography, the People Understairs is the most underrated. And it's crazy how socially relevant that movie still is. Brandon Adams to to have a child carry a film like that is um 
is amazing. And he was a great actor back then. Then you had Ving Rhames, you had Kelly Jo Minter, um, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby playing the man and the woman, the crazy man and the woman, AJ Langer playing Alice. You had one of the things Wes Craven was good at was that he you know misdirection you think you might be going into this movie expecting what you think you are expecting and it's something completely different i don't know if if i went into the movie thinking it was going to be i'm pretty sure i thought it was going to be zombies because in the trailer there's a shot of the, the the kids that live under the stairs you know reaching through reaching through the the wooden door and i'm like are these zombies and then there's a guy and a woman that are that are two evil people trying to you know trying to kill this little boy i didn't know what was going on it's one of those like cabin in the woods things man and um this is definitely a 90s gymnast that uh that hits home for me because like i said it is socially relevant it does deal with a lot of um like the underlying themes are are very relevant today. You've you know you've got racism. You've got a uh, not corrupt cops, but the cops were so fucking uh, irrelevant here. But you've got you know uh, slum lords and you know a uh, gentrification stuff like that. The movie is amazing. Wes Craven was very ahead of his time when it came to social commentary and films. Man, he did it. He did it in spades like really well. Number seven is another 1991 movie, uh, Cape Fear. Now, of course, we know Martin Scorsese directed this movie. This is more so a thriller than a horror, but there is there are horror elements here because Robert De Niro as Max Cady is is on some he he's on some real murder shit. eh? that's that's paid in full reference. Anybody that ain't know, but he really was on some real murder shit, but he does it slow. He does it meticulously in the movie. He's not just going to kill Nick Nolte, who plays Sam Bolton in the movie, he's not just going to kill him and um, uh, uh, Jessica Lange and Juliette Lewis. He's no, he is going to make their lives a living hell. He's going to poison the dog. He's going to, you know, run up on his daughter and just be a fucking creepy as Victor Salva Harvey Weinstein type of dude up on up on their underage daughter. He's going to um he's going to pull up on the wife and hand the dog collar back like he didn't murder the dog and or something like that. He's is real it's a really great cat and mouse thriller but it definitely has some horror elements even at the end. I don't know if people remember Robert De Niro playing Frankenstein back in the 90s which is a god damn it that's a movie I should have put on this list and I didn't. But um there's a scene where Juliet Lewis uh he's lighting a cigar and Juliet Lewis sprays him with lighter fluid he gets burnt up but he comes back like for some reason uh Max Cady is indestructible in this movie he gets his ass kicked by these three goons in the alleyway or in the parking lot and um he, he just he knocks them all the fuck out and sends them running and you know he gets set on fire he jumps back on the boat uh, Nick Nolte slams a big ass like rock onto his head and completely misses and he's like drowning singing in tongues and it's some really really weird shit that Robert De Niro does and that's probably one of his his greatest performances of his career but Cape Fear I do put on this list because there are a lot of horror elements in the movie um, even the way some of the shots are set up uh, there, you know there's a shot of of him just creeping around just sitting on a wall that's it's, it's a it's a, like a green screen but it's more of a matte painting that he's behind with a bunch of fireworks and shit but it's a beautiful beautiful shot um that's another thing about the the movie cape fear um it doesn't necessarily look like a horror movie but it's it's very very polished up 
so well man the movie looks great and you can tell when the matte paintings pop up and when they don't but the movie looks the cinematography is amazing in cape fear if anybody hasn't seen it please check it out you can watch the the original and then watch the remake because you'll you'll see oh that's gregory peck oh that's robert mitchell from the original movie they make cameos in it but it's it's such a great watch man now Number eight, uh, which should have been my number seven because it was a 1990 movie and I was moving on to 91. Uh, this is this is one that's a little more. It, it could be considered controversial as far as this list goes, because it's it's, it's lighter in tone. Um, it does have its really violent moments, but it is it is lighter in tone. And definitely as the movies go on, they not lost their way, but they became what they became. Basically, this shit's like it became like the Fast and Furious franchise of monster movies. But I'm um, talking about Tremors from 1990, which was directed by Ron Underwood. Now, Tremors, um, while the tone for this movie was very comedic, uh, there's 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 very little like serious toned horror movie moments in this movie. Um, but this still is a 90s gem that is considered a horror. You know, you. For the most part, if you if you went in Blockbuster back in the day, you're not going to find Tremors in the comedy section. You're going to find it in the horror section, and rightfully so. It's big-ass, subterranean, prehistoric worms underground eating people. And they're not only big-ass worms, but they're worms that are attracted to sound. They will pull your ass underground and just eat you alive. And they got worms inside of the worm. Like, their, their tongues, they got multiple tongues that play as their own worms. Like, if the tongues themselves were an origin story, it could have been based on that. And then they grew into the tremors. Of course, we know the tremors would, would evolve to walk and have chicken legs and have a heat seeker, you know, brains on top of their head. They would fly and become the ass blasters. They would become... Uh, I don't even know what the hell they became in the other movies. The other movies definitely are fun to watch, and they got a new one coming out. But, you know, Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, they couldn't make they couldn't make this a horror movie toned type of thing if they tried because their chemistry on screen is just too funny. It's too funny for me to even take it seriously. Like, of course, I wanted the characters to live in Tremors, but the movie is OK. It's more of a comedy than anything, but we can safely say Tremors is an underrated uh, 90s gem. It is, man. It is. Now, the first one would have to be the only one you would consider straight up horror if you even took it there because the rest of them, they went heavy on the comedy. There's straight up comedy. It's no sense of urgency, really, in any of the rest of the movies. There, There's, um, I think there's seven totaled. I think the, seven one is, the seventh one is in production right now or whatever the hell is happening with it. I don't know. Now, moving on. Number nine is... um. One of my personal favorites, again, uh, came out in 91. Sometimes they come back, which was directed by, and I didn't even notice this until um, a couple months ago. It was directed by Tom McLaughlin, who did my favorite Friday 13th uh, entry, part six, Jason Lives. Now, there, there's a serious tone with this movie. There's a serious tone. There's a lot of urgency. There's a lot of good, serious acting, especially by Tim Matheson and... Um, is it Brooke Shields? I want to say Brooke Adams. I know she's a Brooke. But you get Robert Rustler playing the lead goon dude uh, in, in, in the movie. And this movie is, is one that feels not straight up hard, but it feels like more of a ghost tale. I don't know if the cinematography for this movie is done on purpose, but there is like a lens of fog and just ghostly 
over this entire movie. It feels, it doesn't feel like a theatrical movie. It doesn't feel like a straight to TV movie. It just feels like a ghost story. I don't know. It looks like a ghost story and it plays out rightfully so as a ghost story. Um, but this is definitely a gem a lot of people don't talk about. It, I feel like a lot of the Stephen King movies uh, kind of go under the radar, like the feature length films, not the ones that have like two parts like The Stand or The Tommyknockers. But movies like this that are based off of off of Stephen King properties, I don't know why we don't give like these movies the credit they deserve. Um, I'm going to talk about another um you know another Stephen King property that's underrated uh, next for my number 10 but with with sometimes they come back yeah there, there are two more movies in the series that we're not gonna talk about those but with this movie I, I just can't explain it man it's one of those movies I would have to do a top five eventually it's one of those movies that I would put in a category with something like The Fog where it doesn't feel like a slasher it doesn't feel like a monster movie or anything of that nature even though these these three undead guys in the movie are are kind of like monsters or undead zombie monster goon demon assholes i don't know what if that's just a new category i just made up but i put it in the category of something like the fog because it just feels like you could tell this story or watch this movie in front of a campfire for some reason it just i don't know how to explain it i'm not going to spend too much time on it hopefully y'all understand what i'm trying to say here especially the people that really you know, pay attention to cinematography and stuff like that in the movies. Now, number 10, another property based off a Stephen King novel is Graveyard Shift, which I should have put earlier because this is also a 1990 movie. But um, this was directed by Ralph Singleton. I don't know what else he went on to direct, but the Graveyard Shift was, if is to my understanding, it was a box office bomb. I'm one of those people that can appreciate the simplicity in this movie. I can appreciate the practical in this movie. I know we don't see a lot of this monster. And I know when we do see the monster, it's kind of hard to make out exactly what the fuck it is. It's like, is this monster part bat? Clearly it's part bat because it has wings. It, you know, it was on some Jeepers Creepers 2 shit in, in one scene where the guy's stringing up lights in the basement. And the, the, the creature just puts his wing over the guy's entire upper torso like at least up until you get to or down until you get to like his ankles and it's just holding him up in the air but he's like trying to breathe through the the the, the wings and he can't but you know when we look at the monster it's like okay it's part bat but it is it part rat because there are rats in the basement that kind of like gather and scatter when it comes around is this like the big mama rat bat is it a brat it's a brat that's what we're gonna call it the bat rat we're gonna call it a brat so but the brat thing, it is very creepy to know that you are working in this textile mill for one, which I don't know if that building is still standing, but it looks like it was falling apart when production was underway for that movie. But I appreciate how dirty, how gritty, how grimy the movie feels because it makes me feel like I work in that textile mill with those people. And it's scary to think that not only is your boss a creepy asshole, but um you know that there's this monster eating people in the basement and then when you find a trap door in the basement that leads to another basement underneath that basement where the monster's just swimming in the water waiting for people you know there's that scene where he um where he eats the guy broken in the water and while we don't see it again like there's a lot of shit we don't see in that movie but i can i can appreciate the 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 story itself 
and the fact that we don't get a lot of decent monster movies as is and if we do they like to cg the fuck out of these monsters man i'm a i'm a practical guy i can appreciate the the blood sweat and tears that go into practical effects man that's what it's about really and that's not to shoot down anybody that does a lot of cg work or that prefers cg work with this with the monsters on screen i just like you know i like watching the making of things and seeing how it's done and stuff like that and it's kind of what Graveyard Shift was. It's underrated, man. It, is, it does feel like a fairly short film, but it's still, I think it's an underrated monster movie nonetheless. It's definitely better than a lot of the Stephen King adaptations that came in the 90s and probably early 2000s or so. Now, number 11, this is kind of, I'm kind of on the fence about this because this is another one of those movies that's, it does not really feel like a horror movie, at least maybe until the end. And even at the end of it, it's, it's not it's not heavy on the horror um silence of the lambs which came out in 1991 i um, i don't want anybody to get pissed off when i say this but i'm gonna say it i'm gonna keep it a bean with y'all like i always do silence of the lambs is i you know i saw the movie i watched i saw it of course after uh hannibal and red dragon and hannibal rising um but the silence of the lambs is is cool Jonathan Demme does a good job of pulling you in with these actors. Like, if he wants to have Jodie Foster having a conversation with Anthony Hopkins, he's going to do so. But he's going to film it in a way where they are staring directly into the screen so you feel as though they're talking to you. So it brings you very much into their conversation. And I I really appreciate that about Jonathan Demme's, uh, his style of directing. He does that shit a lot. He did it in... um. The Manchurian Candidate, I think he directed that with Denzel Washington, Lee Schreiber, Kimberly Elise. But The Silence of the Lambs, you know, you've got uh, uh, Clarice Starling, Hannibal Lecter, Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine. Uh, you, you got two different movies going on here. You've got them trying to catch Buffalo Bill. You've got this dynamic between... Um, I, I want to say weird sexual tension in a way too between Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling but the movie really is a crime thriller they're trying to catch a killer it plays out like like the Exorcist 3 also I'm not gonna be biased but yeah like the Exorcist 3 it plays out like a crime thriller and kind of like Cape Fear in the sense that you know it's like a fucking CSI episode or something like that or something like to catch a killer type of thing excuse me that's exactly what it is but it is a 90s gem to say the least because um who would have thought that you could you know um i can't remember the, the guy's name who who wrote the books on these i really his name's on the tip of my tongue i swear to god if i spend any more time thinking about it i'm going to this episode is going to drag out so long i don't want to do it i want to do it okay we're gonna move on but silence of the lambs is definitely number 11 number 12 uh, definitely deserves to be on this list. 1992 brought this baby about, uh, and also Bernard Rose brought this baby about. Did commentary for it also, if y'all want to check that out. Candyman. Now, Candyman should have been, you know, if I wasn't going in order by year or trying to, for that matter, Candyman would be a lot higher on this list because it was actually one of the first movies I thought of. Um, probably one of the top five movies I thought of as far as 90s gems go. Um, we're not going at, we're not going to sit up here and act like we're not still scared of Candyman. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. I'm speaking for myself and anybody out there that feels my pain. I'm not going to front. Like I'm not still scared of this goddamn movie, scared of this character. I still won't say the shit in the mirror five times. I was joking a couple weeks ago or a month or so ago and was like, I'm going to do the Candyman challenge and see if I survive it. I'm going to do it on like Instagram live or some shit. I bitched out. I know better. I ain't doing that shit, but 
Um, Candyman, to say the least, is yet another ghost tale that is not only a ghost tale, it's a slasher. You know, he does slash it in the movie, whether it's off screen or not. And Candyman is another one of those movies that plays out like you can you can tell this story you know, this is like an urban legend. It's like folklore, basically. That's exactly what that movie feels like. Is like um, urban folklore, and Candyman, man, we 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 hadn't seen a character like that before, man. Uh, the novel I hadn't read prior to watching the movie, or or the rest of the movies for that matter, but just the way that Bernard Rose puts that movie together, um, you know, the score, the cast, the acting, the the direction, it, it's. It's kind of one of those Jacob's Ladder type of things where parts of the movie feel like an acid trip, where Helen Lyle is tripping out. Um, you know, Virginia Madison did a great job in that role, but there, you know, the scenes where Helen Lyle is tripping out, or the scenes where Candyman's not even on screen, but you hear him just doing narration of just this creepy ass dialogue and shit like that. It's just you can't talk about '90s horror movies without mentioning my boy Candyman. He definitely earns his spot in this top twenty that I'm talking about. Not even the top 20, because I'm pretty sure I missed um, a lot of movies, but just in these 20 movies that I'm talking about in this episode. Number 13, 1992, brought this John in, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm going to be completely honest about this also. I have not seen this movie since I was a kid, and I feel like I have not watched it fully ever in my life. There is not one scene I can take out of this movie that I remember, like in full, like remember the dialogue and I remember play for play how it happened. Um, and that's not to say that I don't think this is a good film. Francis Ford Coppola, I actually I really have to go back to that movie because if I'm not mistaken, Francis Ford Coppola directed the Godfather series and I hadn't seen the original Godfather, the first Godfather movie until, you know, I, I saw it for the first time last year and I was really late to the party. And I think I gave that movie a 10 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10 for it being so good. Uh, so I got to, you know, I have to go back and watch Bram Stoker's Dracula, but this ensemble cast here, this is some shit that you don't see in a lot of horror movies. Uh, Gary Oldman, uh, Ke a young Keanu Reeves with Noah Ryder. You don't get powerhouse players like that on screen, people, especially in something like, uh, you know, like a horror movie. But this was I feel like this was one of the classiest takes on on Bram Stoker's Dracula that you're going to get, um, even though I don't remember. You know, I remember little to nothing about the movie, but it definitely goes on the list because um there was a time where universal movie monsters were thriving in the 90s and we didn't even notice it i did another episode on that um where i talked about you know that time the dark universe basically flew right past our heads we didn't even know we had dracula um we had frankenstein we had the phantom of the opera we didn't have basically the invisible man aka hollow man until the 2000s i think 2001 but we had you know, we had Frankenstein, we had the Wolfman, we we had all of those things. God damn it, that's another movie I forgot to put on this list. That's an honorable mention that I'm going to just throw in there right now. It was um, Wolf with Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Plummer, James Spader. Wolf definitely belonged on this list. I don't know how it got by me. I think that movie came out in 1994. R.I.P. Shout out to Mike Nichols who directed the movie. But moving on, uh, Mr. Manny Cotto gave me this silly, silly movie, but, I, you know... In, as far as tone, this movie's a lot sillier than Tremors or anything that people might have thought had a real humorous tone to it. Uh, Dr. Giggles, which came out in 1992. Now, 
I have to put Dr. Giggles on this list because while the movie is very, very cheesy, he's got about, I, I don't know, him and Freddie might have the same book of, you know, one-liners for dummies, but, uh, you know, Larry Drake's Dr. Giggles character might have just put it in the context of the fact that he was a failed practitioner. Um, but the movie is extremely cheesy. The one-liners are crazy. But the thing I love about this movie is this underrated slasher horror um for better or worse because this is a killer who's very consistent in his mo you know if he's if he's going to kill you he's going to kill you with some weird shit that has everything to do with a doctor in a doctor's office whether it be a needle you know filled with some green shit that he actually killed dougie doug with i don't know what the hell was in that to this day whether it's a you know some type of power saw I don't know what like half the shit he uses in that movie. I just know he is consistent. He is very consistent in his method to his madness in that movie. And RIP shout out to Larry Drake. He did a great job in that role. Um, he's one of the more underrated slashers. Like I wouldn't be surprised if we got a remake of Dr. Giggles and I would be all for it, but I'm not sure if it would work if you tried to make it super serious. That's a movie where you kind of would need the humor. Um, you definitely would need the humor injected in it uh, in, in, in more ways than one. But that Dr. Giggles definitely belongs on this list. Now, number 15, we about to wrap this up in a little bit, people. Uh, number 15, I actually only know one of the two directors for this movie. Ian Sharp was one of the directors for this 1992 underrated sci-fi gem. And I was actually, you know, me and my cousin wanted to start doing underrated sci-fi movies. This was definitely on the list because I remember seeing this as a kid. He had saw it before me, but I remember seeing it as a kid. And it was, I remember it being pretty cool. I haven't seen it since then but um i remember this movie really sticking out it was it was a futuristic gritty monster movie split second with rucker howard now rucker howard was chasing down um a serial killer who was ripping people's hearts out in london and it was futuristic london i can't remember what the year it was like 20 something um really crazy depicted future uh but rucker howard's hunting down a serial killer who he found out was not human at all it was a tall ass monster with talons and teeth that was literally ripping people's hearts out in london now i don't remember much about this movie i just do know that along with another honorable mention i didn't put on this list screamers with peter weller along with screamers and stuff like you know uh, uh virus even though that was post uh 96 and all that type of stuff there are a lot of underrated sci-fi gems that might be another episode i do just by itself just the underrated sci-fi movies whether it be the desolate rundown future whether it be the polished up future split second definitely belongs on that list and um i, I definitely got to go back and and uh and watch it because rucker howard's like he he can really do no wrong like even in something like hobo with a shotgun which i was pleasantly surprised with it's as dumb as that movie is it's fucking rucker howard man rest in peace shout out to rucker howard though Number 16, the man, the myth, George A. Romero did The Dark Half in 1993. Now, y'all know, as a, um, you know, proud, self-proclaimed writer or aspiring screenwriter, whatever you want to, you know, classify me as, as long as you don't put me in a box, don't do that. I'm not ready for that yet. But The Dark Half, I'm all for those writers going crazy, writers in Jeopardy stories. The Dark Half is definitely something I put in a category with The Shining, 1408, Misery, um, Secret Window, uh, Sinister. I'm all for movies like that. I, I can relate to how crazy these motherfuckers go, even though I've never, you know, had my my insane other half of me, you know, my alter ego go out and slaughter people. But George A. Romero... 
this guy, this is a guy who I I can respect George A. Romero for trying something different every once in a while, but people couldn't really accept that. I could, but if the movie wasn't great, then it just wasn't great. It is what it is, man. I have to call a spade a spade, but I can respect the guy for trying to do something other than just be that zombie guy. When people saw the dark half, you know, they didn't receive it well. It wasn't received well at the box office, but the dark half, you know, um, it, it it is a supernatural type of slasher movie. There's like some really supernatural crazy shit going on at the end of the movie. But um, Timothy Hutton is really underrated in this movie, man. He's a great actor. He was also in Secret Window, by the way. He played Maria Bello's, you know, new boyfriend or new husband, whatever. But um, there's a lot of supernatural shit going on in this movie. And I feel like people couldn't just accept the fact that George A. Romero just wanted to do something. He's like, listen, I've done Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. I've, I've done the zombie shit. You know, like, let me try to do something a little different. And whether it worked or whether it didn't, it sticks out like a sore thumb as far as 90s horror goes, as far as underrated gems go. And this is another movie that I definitely have to go back and watch. It is on demand a lot for the free ski, so I don't know what my excuse is. Now, moving on. We're almost done, people. I promise y'all. If y'all stuck with me this long, y'all the real MVPs. Uh, number 17, Interview with the Vampire, 1994. Neil Jordan, who did The Crying Game. I've never seen The Crying Game. And based on that twist ending i don't know if i want to see it i'm i'm not for the movies with the chicks with the dicks and all that type stuff um here i i always hear that that's what the crying game is about but neil jordan interviewed the vampire this is you can consider this a horror you can consider this a thriller you can consider this a drama more than anything because it's got some dramatic dramatic acting from brad pitt Tom Cruise, uh, Kirsten Dunst just killed it in that movie. Antonio Banderas, not so much in the dramatic parts of the movie, but um, he 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 does what he has to do as a as a as a presence, I guess. Now, I you know I can look past the homoerotic tones that are in Interview with the Vampire because they are showered in that uh, in that movie. I don't know if that's how I've never read the Anne Rice novel, but I you know, I don't know if that's how it was in the novel or if it was uh, you know, if it was a lot heavier in the novel or what the case was. I can get past the I can get past that because Interview with the Vampire is what makes it one of the greatest vampire movies ever is the story. The story is so good in this movie and the acting is so good and even the the horror scenes when you get them you know tom cruise gives you a lot more horror scenes than anybody in the entire movie brad pitt actually gives one of the best horror horror like scenes in a movie where when he gets out of that wall when antonio banderas gets him out of that wall and he finds out claudia and her you know her new mother have just turned to ashes when he loses his shit and starts, you know, burning up the vampires while they're in the coffins and he's swinging that children of the corn harvest knife thing and he cuts Stephen Ree's character in half like that is some that is horror movie shit right there, man. And that movie needed that because it's so elegant. It's so classy. It's so polished. Like we needed to see somebody get sliced in half. You know, you needed to see Brad Pitt exact revenge at some point in that movie. But for the most part, it definitely is. Um underrated horror and people don't i feel like it gets the love it, it deserves but not a lot of people really you know when you think of 90s vampire movies that is not the first movie that's going to come to their to their you know to their brain it's i can almost guarantee that number 18 
I need this guy to answer my Instagram tags and my emails, Mr. Ernest Dickerson. Yes, I'm talking to you. Demon Knight 1995. Demon Knight is one of the most underrated horror siege films ever made. It is, um, I can look past the fact that it's, it's showered in humor because that's what Tales from the Crypt was. Tales from the Crypt was to creep you out, but to make sure that you have the the most fun time you'll ever have being scared. Like, I'm sorry, because that was the creep show tagline, I think, that I just, how the hell did I incorporate the creep show tagline for Demon Knight? That's some true geek shit right there, but Demon Knight, you got this motley crew cast of characters who have to survive the night and i love a good siege film like in, in, the, in the spirit of things like night of the living dead and stuff like that where we are being attacked we are being attacked by um some type of evil that's outside trying to get in here and we have to make sure we keep that evil outside so we survive the night i love movies like that and demon knight you know william sadler jada pinkett God damn, CCH Ponder, Dick Miller, Thomas Hayden Church, Billy Zane as the the collector, the the, the villain. Yo, man, I, listen, the cast alone, if the movie would have been about something else, the cast would have carried the shit out of this movie, man. I almost damn well guarantee it. And it's, it is nasty, man. Like, as funny as it is, you can have a moment of horror and then have a moment of humor and then follow it right back up with a moment of horror. Like, there's a scene where... um. You know, there, there's a scene where CCH Ponder gets her fucking arm torn off, and then the next scene, they're pouring liquor on the stump, and she just asks for the bottle, and she just takes a big-ass swig of the vodka. That is, um, that is good shit right there. That is great balance between humor and horror right there, and I feel like you need that. If it's a movie that's in the tone, the essence of Tales from the Crypt, you need both those, um, you need both those elements, basically, um, to, to, to balance everything out. Now, number 19... It's another one of those cases where, you know, you can put in the category something like Silence of the Lambs or Cape Fear or Misery or the Exorcist 3 because it does play out like a um, it, it does play out like a crime thriller more so than a straight up horror film. And that is Seven, which came out in 1995, directed by David Fincher. Now, David, excuse me, David Fincher, this was um, this was his moment to shine where he went, OK, um, you know, back then I wasn't hot. What what, did, what the fuck did Mike Jones say? He said, uh, back then they didn't want me. Now I'm hot hoes all on me. And it's like, yeah, he he got the craziest backlash for um, what, what's that movie? Alien 3. And I feel for the guy because he didn't have the creative control that he was supposed to have for that movie. And that was the result of too much studio involvement, too many cooks in the kitchen, as they call it. But seven, seven is one of the greatest horror crime thrillers ever made and what's crazy about that movie a little fun fact for y'all denzel washington turned down that movie when he got the script for it he was supposed to play um mills he was supposed to play the, the character that brad pitt played so Den imagine denzel and morgan freeman in a fucking horror crime thriller like come on now but everything happened the way it was supposed to happen it was supposed to be brad pitt and morgan freeman side by side because they have some great great dysfunctional ass chemistry on screen together um i know everything that's going on with kevin spacey people so we don't have to you know jump into that but kevin spacey at the time did scare the shit out of me as john doe and like very much like the exorcist 3 7 is a movie that that thrives and succeeds off of implication you know you don't have to see a lot of horror happen on screen they can imply what happened they can explain what happened in monologue whether it's back and forth dialogue with another person or whether you just see 
a vicious ass image in the movie you know the, everything is implied the movie did not need a whole bunch of gore it did not need a whole bunch of um just on-screen violence the movie just will send chills up your spine just the way it's executed in general now i'm gonna wrap this up people because i see i'm almost <laughs> an hour into this and um clearly that's a testament of how passionate i am about some of these fucking episodes but number 20 man this is another uh, example of like horror and humor but this is a this is a movie that is so ahead of its time so ahead of its time uh if you watch it now you see that every single segment in this anthology is still relevant today and i'm talking about tales from the hood which came out in 1995 it was directed by rusty kundif i hope i said that name right the guy's from pa also i i, I sent him an email once or twice man i really would like to interview this guy on an episode of the podcast so i mr kundif i hope i'm saying your last name right i need you to answer um need you to answer the call man i'm putting the horror bat signal out there for you but you got that guy and spike lee collaborating on a horror anthology for black people like for the culture but if you look back on those segments in the anthology you've got everything that's relevant today you've got corrupt cops you've got police brutality you've got uh school bullying you've got uh domestic abuse child abuse you've got crooked racist politicians you've got the reparations angle you've got um You've got black on black crime and uh, how some people can't be rehabilitated afterwards or something like that. You've got everything socially relevant going for this movie that still holds up. The movie holds up so well to this day, man. It's one of the greatest anthologies I've ever seen in my life. The sequel, I'll probably stay away from that. I don't hear anything but bad things about it. And it's one of the case, one of the, one of the cases where I will actually listen to what people say about that movie i you know maybe i'll do it for the shit show edition commentary i'm not sure uh it'll probably be fun but i'm gonna need a shit ton of liquor to get through that but um you know with that being said people you know tales from the hood is the number 20 on the list all of these movies people this is a statement right here that 90s horror was not dead uh, you know until scream came out yes scream deserves all the acclaim all the credit it gets but um to to be completely honest it was not the first meta horror movie it was the first uh the one to do it the way that it did and make it truly the way it was written for us horror fans it's like we, it's like we were right in the movie ourselves basically but you know pre-96 we had a lot of gems man and you see i had a couple honorable mentions here that i didn't even write down but there was um there was a lot there was a lot of uh, a lot of fun to be had a lot of scares to be had in the 90s man so i just wanted to take the time out to give it you know to to, to give it pay pay respects to the 90s era of horror to um you know to be basically be the one to speak out against the ones that say that the 90s era of horror was the dead the dead era of horror because it wasn't it really wasn't but um yeah man uh just completely lost my train of thought just now but i don't know maybe next time i'll do like a 2000s era but i feel like that that era probably had way more acclaim than it than um you know not not more acclaim than people give it credit for but that has the, it has the acclaim that you know that's not fooling anybody because the era 2000s not only had a uh, mainstream horror that was really popping and was getting box office returns the way it was 
with the help of Scream, of course, because it was a lot of ripoffs. But um, the 2000s was the birth of the, you know, they started bringing back a lot of slasher remakes and stuff like that. But um, the 90s definitely will forever be that underrated era. It's not going to be the 80s. It's not going to be the 70s. It's not going to be the 60s because those were what they were for a reason. And they stood tall for a reason. The 90s will always be the underrated era of horror movies people and clearly y'all see it took me almost goddamn an hour to get my point across and get into that but you know if y'all are all for whether it's an hour whether it's two hours whether it's two minutes i don't think i would ever do a two minute episode but y'all know where to go man if y'all don't know where to go y'all can follow the podcast on anchor spotify itunes google podcast apple podcast overcast pocket cash breaker and radio public follow me on facebook and instagram romero tutor follow the facebook movie group the cinemaniacs big shout out to the tutor reviewers man the listeners the lovers the supporters man i feel something really good happening with this podcast man and i'm speaking into existence i spoke to ocho i spoke to 800 spins into existence and i think two days later it happened or a day later or so but i don't know what what i can act i can't put my finger on it but i feel something like really good about to happen man and um i wouldn't be able to have these good vibes without good support and you know good um shout outs and stuff from from the from the listeners from the fans and stuff like that so i definitely definitely appreciate y'all man and i will show the love and support right back to y'all no questions asked so with that being said people i need my motherfucking coffee uh yours truly romero tutor another episode of tutor reviews in the can i'll check y'all on the next one